Great. Thanks so much, Rachel. And thanks to John for leading as well. Uh, just let me add my welcome. My name's Steve. I'm the pastor of the church here. If you're visiting or you're here for the first time, uh, a very warm welcome to you. Um, you should be given a notice sheet on your way in which has an outline of the sermon um, on the inside uh, page as well, if that's of use to you. And also to say that we are uh, doing community carol singing tonight at 6 p.m. Uh, around the streets around here, we'll be going carol singing, even if it's raining. Even if it's raining, you can sing under an umbrella. That's fine. Even if England are playing football, we are going singing uh, this evening at 6 p.m. and uh, we'll come back here for uh, hot chocolates and things like that. Great opportunity to invite people to the carol services, so please do come uh, tonight at 6. Let me pray for us as we come to look at God's word. Let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we come now as uh, needy people who long to hear your voice from your words. Lord, I am very conscious of my own sin and weakness, and we're all are conscious of our neediness. And so we pray, please, that in your mercy and by your grace, uh, by your spirit through your word, you might speak to our hearts this morning for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to spend our our time together considering that second half of Romans chapter 4 together and thinking together what it has to tell us about saving faith. What is saving faith uh, all about? And before we dive in, I want to suggest to us this morning that it's important that we spend some time thinking about what saving faith is uh, because it's something that we're very easily confused about. And I want to suggest, and maybe this is not quite right, but I'm going to suggest it anyway, and you can correct me afterwards if you're wrong. This is just what I perceive. I I want to suggest that we make two mistakes when we think about saving faith. One mistake that we make, which is probably more likely for people who maybe like me are a little bit older, over 40, yeah? If you're over 40, like me, you grew up in an age of rationalism and reason, didn't you? Science and rationality. And you... You and I, we tell a friend, listen, I'm a Christian, and they reply by saying something like this to us. They say, oh, I could never be a Christian because I could never have your faith. I'm more about facts and science than I am about religious mythology. You know, jolly good for you, not really for me. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you think like that yourself. I think the assumption is, in that statement, is that faith involves believing unlikely things, yeah? Faith means believing myths that are scientifically dubious. And I wonder if as Christians we've reacted to that sort of tension by trying to downplay what faith is. We've tried to say that faith is not really that extraordinary at all and have emphasized this idea that everybody has faith, that that trusting in science is, if you like, a statement of faith. You know, even now, sitting in the chair that you're sitting in, you are exercising a certain level of faith that that chair uh, will hold you up. And so we've tried to demystify faith, if you like, in response to that rationalism, pretending it's ordinary. But I want to suggest to you this morning that faith is anything but ordinary. Saving faith, the faith that we'll see in Romans chapter 4, is nothing like the faith that you're exercising in your chair right now. It's far, far more extraordinary than that. It's more mysterious than that even. Saving faith is neither an irrational, unplug your brain, you know, step into the dark, But it's not just rational either. It's a spiritual action that can't be understood by pure logic or reason. Uh, Saving faith in the Bible is is more like falling in love 
than it is deciding to sit down on a chair. But I want to say as well, I think there's another way of misunderstanding faith, which is perhaps more likely if you're under 40 or if you spend a lot of time on social media. Now, some of you who are in my category this morning who are over 40 are thinking, well, I hope he speaks to me right now because that's going to make me feel a lot younger than I really am. But there you go. That's probably just because you spend your time scrolling Instagram. For you guys, it's likely that the rationalism of the older generation has just left you feeling cold, depressed. Maybe you, you wince at the shallowness of it. Now, you rightly understand that life can't be explained and understood by just things that you can see and feel and touch. There's more to life than that. And so the mysteriousness of faith is important to you. So much so that almost the very action of believing something unlikely is to be encouraged, not thrown away. More than that, I think often even that very process of believing in the unlikely is often seen itself as the means of achieving the unlikely. I know that sounds crazy, but it is, isn't it? This is how it works. It's called manifesting. You believe in something that doesn't exist, and the process of believing that it will exist is the process by which it does come to exist. Are you confused? You know, we believe that we are going to be the best version of ourselves, and it is the process of believing that makes us into that person. You draw to yourself the, the positive energy of faith, and you repeat mantras to yourself in front of the mirror or write them in your journal. I'm strong. I'm going to boss this exam. I'm going to get the job of my dreams. I'm going to marry Tom Holland, whoever he is. Now, in that view, faith is like a work, yeah? The highest form of work, even. In that view, it's the most important thing that you have to do every day is exercise your faith. It's a work that you need to do in order to achieve the ends that you want for your life. It's the sort of thing that you will do and put everything else to one side so that you can do this faith work in order to make the changes that you need in your life. Now, there's lots to say about that. I can't say it all now. But what I want you to notice is that it's very, very different to saving faith here in Romans chapter 4. Saving faith in the Bible is not a work like that. Saving faith in the Bible is not an end in itself. And if you think of your saving faith in that kind of category of modern manifestation, it will always be disappointing to you. You'll be confused about the Christian life. Because faith in Christ is not a sort of Christian version of manifesting. And that will just lead to disappointment, but more of that later. I want us with those things in mind, and with those sort of two errors in mind, the sort of rationalistic, well, faith must just be unplugging your brain, and the faith is a work that achieves things. I want us to, with those things in mind, have a look at Romans chapter 4, this second half, and see what saving faith, real faith, the faith of justification by faith is all about. So let me start with this. Faith is not interested in itself, but in God's faithfulness. If you look down at verse 18 in our passage, verse 18 in our passage gives a very good definition of faith. Take another look at it. In hope he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Here Paul, talking about Abraham, says that his faith was, what did he describe it as? Hope against hope. Now that sounds, doesn't it, like the irrationality that we were talking about earlier. Believing in something unlikely. But notice it's not blind faith, is it? It's faith that is hope against hope because of what it has been told. He believes what he has been told. 
Faith is not irrational, but it's a belief in a promise that God has made, a promise that he knows that it will be kept for no other reason other than the fact he knows the God who made it. Faith reaches out to God and not into itself. Faith is, you like, that the response to seeing, perceiving, hearing, understanding God's faithfulness. And understanding God's faithfulness trumps any objections that we might come up with against faith. But there's more than this too as well, isn't it? Because this kind of faith in faithfulness is the opposite of works. Glance back to verse 13 and you'll see that salvation is a promise to Abraham. It's a promise made and kept by God that Abraham would be the heir of the world. And he says, doesn't it? It means this cannot be, cannot be by works or works of the law, as he puts it. Faith cannot be a work because otherwise God could not guarantee the outcome. And verse 14, what the promise would be void. Notice that. This is super obvious, but it's brilliant. So it's just worth pausing and making sure we're clear in it in our minds. God could not promise you or I something that depended on our works for it to achieve. Why not? Well, because he could not guarantee that we would do the bit that depended on us to do it. So verse 16, look at verse 16, that is why it, as in the promise of salvation given to Abraham, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Notice that carefully, salvation depends on faith so that it might rest on grace and be guaranteed. In other words, faith is not an action on which salvation is resting. Rather, faith is the receiver of salvation, which itself rests on grace. And because it rests on grace, it means that God can guarantee its outcome. See, if it was the other way around, if faith was a work on which salvation rested, then God could not make a promise that he could keep. God could not be God, and the whole thing would fall apart. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we were looking at Romans chapter 1, about the nature of sin. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, just turn over a couple of pages and look at it, you get to see what the heart of sin is. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. What does he say? What is sin like? For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God, or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, this is sin, right? Sin sees the glory and the greatness of God. It sees his, his bigness, his greatness, and it goes, nah, I don't want any of it. Not interested. Not interested. I don't want it. I want to do my own thing. Saving faith is the opposite of that, yeah? Saving faith sees the greatness of God and says, yes, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I hear the promise of justification by faith for all who believe. I see the greatness of God in achieving it in Christ, and I go, yes, I want to trust him. He is faithful, and I believe in him. Imagine it like this uh, for a moment. Pretend for a moment that you've never had a piece of caramel shortbread. I know that's a dark imagination, but imagine just for a moment that you've never had caramel. Caramel shortbread is the finest cake item that has ever been made, yeah? You know, you've been going to the bakery for years and years, and you've been paying good money for those dry sponge cakes, and you've never, you've never had caramel shortcake. You've just passed it by every time. And you've been, as far as you could tell, fairly satisfied with these dry, boring sponge cakes that you've been eating day on day on day. But then, 
one day, for a reason that you don't fully understand, you walk into the bakery again and you read the label on the caramel shortcake. And it says this, cake of cakes. Take and eat without price and discover that true satisfaction lies within. And you hear that in a way that you've never really heard it before. You've been in the presence of the sign before, and you've maybe even glanced at it. You've seen other people taking and eating the caramel shortbread and enjoying it. You've heard them recommend it, but you've never eaten it for yourself. And today you decide, this is the day. I'm going to try it. I'm going to eat it. Cake of cakes, you think. This is amazing. This is going to be brilliant. This is amazing. I'm going to reach out and eat it. And as the food hits your mouth, you think, wow, this is food. This is what mouths were made for. This is what taste buds have been waiting for. I thought I was eating before, but now I'm really eating. Caramel shortbread is the real deal. And from that day on, it is all you eat, day in and day out. Now, of course, the illustration breaks down in lots of levels, not least because if you ate caramel shortbread all day, every day, you would die. But in, in a way, that's saving faith in Romans chapter 4. Faith hears about God and his goodness and his greatness in the promise that he's made. A promise of salvation and forgiveness, of reconciliation with God. A promise based on grace and not payment. And faith bites into that promise, if you like, and finds God to be the most satisfying person ever. So that whatever it was you were trusting in before, whatever dry cakes it were you were eating before, now you trust in Christ and you see, this is what I was made for. This is faith. It's satisfying on a whole new level. A deeper, richer experience than you've ever had before. Faith is not a work that achieves an end. Any more than like swallowing is the thing that fills your stomach. Swallowing an empty mouth does nothing for you. It's instead faith that hopes in God's faithfulness. And it's not a rational craziness, is it, either? But it's not either just pure, cold, transactional rationalism like you are sitting on your chair right now. Instead, it's with eyes wide open as our hearts have been made alive by the Spirit of God, with eyes wide open, seeing the delights of God and his promise. And God, please, I want that for me. I relish it. I get excited by it. Faith, if you like, is an obsessional commitment to the faithfulness of God. So can I ask you this morning, have you ever tried caramel shortbread? Not that caramel shortbread, but knowing God through the Lord Jesus Christ. I know some of you this morning have been around this promise and have heard it so, so many times, but you've never reached out and eaten. But listen, there's no price. There is satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ that you will find nowhere else. There is a wonder of knowing him, that you will find nowhere else. And the offer this morning is to take hold of Christ and eat. And find in him forgiveness, love and grace and mercy and eternal life. Secondly then, faith is not focused on today, but on eternity. Look at verse 17. Abraham is promised to be the father of many nations, heir of the world, as it's put in verse 13. And as we saw last week, this promise to be the father of many nations is made to a guy who has no children and was 100 years old with a wife who was similarly old. So it's no surprise when in verse 17, Paul goes on to call this promise of uh, making him the heir of the nations, of giving life to the dead and calling into existence the things that do not exist. 
In verse 19, we're told that on hearing the promise, Abraham was well aware of the age of his own body. He considered his own body to be as good as debt, he said. But he still had faith. Which means, yes, that Abraham's faith is in God's faithfulness. It is a a hope against hope. But we can say more about that, can't we? Because actually Abraham's faith is faith in not just hope, it's in resurrection hope. You see that? This is so important. Abraham, we're told in last week's passage, is a great example of what it means to be justified to us. But that promise is fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And Abraham puts his faith in the promise and is saved through Christ in the same way as we look back to Christ through the gospel accounts and are saved by faith in Christ. Now you're being told in verse 21 that he is fully convinced that God can do what he promised, even though that meant rising from the dead, giving life to the dead. Let's just underline this so that we're super clear. Jump forward in your Bibles to Hebrews 11. It's page 1007. If you want to turn to it in your Bibles, that's great. If not, it will come up on the screen. This is the great New Testament chapter on faith. Listen to how faith is described in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith, says the writer, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's really similar, isn't it, to Romans 4, verse 18. This is hope against hope, the conviction of things not seen. But look at what the writer says about Abraham's faith, especially here in the sacrifice of his own son. What is it that Abraham's faith understands about God? Look down at verse 17 of Hebrews 11. I've only put part of it on the screen, so if you're in your Bibles, you'll be able to track all of it. Look down at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, we've not got time to go into all the details of the story, but faith in God's faithfulness for Abraham was faith in God's resurrection power. Do you see that? Now, of course, for Abraham and for Old Testament believers, this faith in resurrection power is shadowy in a way. It's outlined in a promise. But for us as New Testament believers, it's painted in in full 4K HD in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Which is why, jumping back to Romans, and go to Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, page 946, this is what Paul writes there. What does it mean to be saved? What does he say? He says this, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Turn back to chapter 4 and verse 24 where we've been reading together this morning. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Now listen, it's not just that Belief and faith in Jesus' own resurrection from the dead is the key to saving faith. Of course it is. It's really central and important that we believe that Jesus was risen from the dead because that's how we know who Jesus is. It's how we know that what he has done on the cross has actually been achieved. But there's more to it than just that. What it means is that actually faith in resurrection hope is a key part of what saving faith actually is. Faith involves believing in the resurrection because saving faith involves believing a promise that can only be kept in resurrection. 
Let me just try and explain how that lands with us practically for a moment. It, it means, listen, if, you're, if your Christian faith this morning can be described simply as a hope that God will help you through your life, or simply as a hope that God will help you achieve your goals and be the best that you can be, or if your faith is, is just limited to your own personal aspirations for this world and this life, let me be really clear, and I'll say it as gently as I can, but I want to be clear, that's not saving faith from Romans 4. It's not. Why? Because saving faith is always resurrection faith. Faith in God's faithfulness for eternity. Let me try and twist it, if I can, a little bit, twist the knife a little bit. I want to say this morning, listen, the problem for us with worldliness and material wealth is not that there's anything wrong in itself with material possessions, but that it has this suffocating effect of taking our eyes off eternity. In other words, it's the extent to which you can see that God can only keep his promises to me if he raises me from the dead. It's to that extent that your faith will rightly understand what you've been promised. And that we'll taste and see the goodness of what God has promised. The goodness of Christ is not a charmed life now, but an eternal home. That's why what John said right at the beginning of our service together this morning was so helpful. The goodness of Christ is not in a charmed life, but in eternal home. And faith is always faith in resurrection hope. We need to keep moving. Thirdly, faith is not wobbly, but certain. I think this is perhaps the hardest point to accept here, but it is important. Faith in Romans 4 is certainty. It's certainty. Do you see that? Look at verses 19 and 20. Abraham's faith has to counteract two problems. One, the weakness of his body. We've talked about that. The second, verse 20, is the bigness of the promise. In other words, Abraham's faith has to counter these two things which, which make it really unlikely. The weakness of his body, the, the human weakness, means that it is unimaginable that the glory that he's promised will be his. And the greatness of the glory means it's unlikely that someone like him will receive it. You know, one without the other would be much simpler, wouldn't it? A big promise to a strong guy, maybe. A small promise to a weak guy, maybe. But here what you've got is a huge promise to a weak guy. Definitely not. But Abraham, and Paul emphasizes this, doesn't he? He knows both those things. He sees those difficulties. He considered them. He... He considered his body. And what did he do? Verse 20, he did not waver. Verse 21, he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. Now, don't mishear this this morning. I don't think it's right to say that saving faith doesn't, at times, struggle with doubt. Doubt's a real thing. The Bible has some helpful things to say about it, most of which we don't have time to cover right now. But what Paul is saying here is that saving faith at its core is not blind ignorance either to the weakness of our condition or to the bigness of what God has promised. Saving faith knows, knows that we don't deserve forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, eternal life in a remade resurrection world. Saving faith knows that we don't deserve to be finally home in a place where all of our longings and desires are satisfied in Christ in endless joy forever and ever. Faith knows that's a big promise and knows that we are weak people. But at the same time, 
it has seen that God is able to keep that and is certain that he will. In other words, saving faith, even at its smallest and most feeble, is not hedging its bets or ensuring its commitments. Instead, saving faith is all in. It's fully committed, banking life and death on the certain hope that Christ's death is sufficient and that God is faithful. Not faith half or faith some, but faithful. Now, Abraham is a really good example of this for the very reason that Abraham's faith is massive. If you want to see the detail, blow something up, yeah? Make it bigger. And so that's why Paul uses Abraham as a brilliant example because his, his faith is huge and so you can see it in its detail. So let me put it this way. You might worry this morning that your faith is too small. You might be sitting here thinking, well, this is all very well, Steve, but I, I feel like my faith is very weak. I, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with sins that I've committed this week which I, I know I wish I didn't but I'm always doing them. I really struggle to trust the Lord that God is able to save people even though their faith is very weak. Have you seen that God is able to save people who struggle with sin, the same sin they struggled with last week? Have you seen that God is able to struggle, uh, able to save those who even, even struggle to speak prayers to him? Well, of course he is. I'm convinced he is. I'm certain of it. And so I'm all in. Listen, younger people this morning, and the rest of you who think you're young, let me talk to you. Saving faith is nothing like manifesting. You know that, don't you? Why is saving faith nothing like manifesting? Why? Well, because saving faith does not save you more because you're better at it. Does that make sense? If you're a young Christian this morning, can I encourage you to stop worrying about your faith and start thinking about Jesus? Does he require you to have a certain level of faith before he can save you? No, he doesn't. How could we believe such a thing? You can be certain that he can save you, even with feeble faith. So look to him and keep trusting in him. Finally then, Faith is not static, but grows. Uh, This is important to notice here. It's verse 20, isn't it? There's an implication that faith should and can grow. It's the testimony of all the scriptures that while saving faith is either present or absent, we are either saved or not saved. You're either trusting in Christ for salvation or you're not trusting in Christ for salvation. Those are the two options for us. Yet still, saving faith in Christ should itself grow. And look at verse 20 to see how saving faith grows. What does he say? No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God. That is so helpful. Abraham's faith grew as he gave glory to God. In other words, it was the very turning from his own circumstances and turning to God and seeing his greatness. That is giving glory, making God look great. It's as he did that that his faith grew. It seems, doesn't it, in the verse that the process is almost a circular one. You know, faith itself is an apprehension or a, an understanding of the glory of God. You know, saving faith goes, yes, God is glorious. And that apprehension makes God look even more glorious as we do it, which then grows our faith as we see more and more of the glory of God, which again makes God look more and more glorious. 
Which means, doesn't it, that Christian growth is in essence here a growing understanding of the greatness of God in Christ that grows an increasingly unshakable confidence that it will keep his promise. Christian growth is an understanding of the greatness of God, a growing understanding of the greatness of God that grows an increasingly unshakable confidence that he's able to keep his promise. It's why hearing God's word taught is so important to us. Why is it so important? Because it's in hearing God's word that you understand more and more of the greatness of God. And it's as you understand more and more of the greatness of God and you glory him for it that your faith will grow. It's why singing his praises together as a church is life-changing for me because I get to hear you glorifying God and telling me how great God is. And it grows my unsteady, fledgling confidence in God to a strong, solid oak tree of confidence in Christ alone. Let me finish just with this this morning. If you're a rationalist and have been lured into thinking that faith in Christ is nothing special really, is it? Let me encourage you this morning to see that there is nothing as special as this faith. There is no one like Christ. And instead, if you're thinking this morning that maybe faith is the key work that you have to do in life, Maybe you're thinking, actually, yes, I I come to church because faith is the thing that I've got to do. Well, let me encourage you, you don't have to work at faith. Instead, you have to keep listening to the greatness of the Lord Jesus. You know, don't stand in front of the mirror in the morning saying, I'm amazing, I'm going to marry Tom Holland. Don't say that. Open a Bible and see how great Jesus is. Grow in your understanding and your appreciation of the glory of God in Christ. This guy loves me. He can save me. I'm going home to be with him. And you will grow in your trust and your confidence in him. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, we want to pray this morning, please, by the power of your Spirit, through your word this morning, will you grow our understanding of your greatness? of the greatness of all that you have achieved for us in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross? Will you give us a growing appreciation of your faithfulness that you might grow our faith in you? Lord, we we long to be like Abraham in his faith, with solid oak trees of faith in you, which are unwavering, unshakable. And we know that we arrive there by considering more and more your goodness and your glory and your faithfulness. So please help us to do that together, both as we open your word and now even as we sing your praises and come to share in the Lord's Supper around your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.